This is episode 113 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, A Quick History of Pandemics and Epidemics. This episode is part of our Near Daily or Daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. If you're like me, it's all become a bit of a blur from SARS to avian to Asiatic, H1N1, COVID, Spanish flu. What is all this? I thought today we'd take a review of the big picture of what's happened with pandemics and epidemics across history. So a pandemic is considered an epidemic of disease that spread across a large region, uh, particularly crossing international borders usually affecting people on a worldwide scale, so multiple continents, a widespread endemic disease with a stable number of infected people is not a pandemic. And so things like the seasonal influenza are also excluded because they occur simultaneously rather than being spread through infection across the world. So we've had some big pandemics uh, in our history, smallpox, tuberculosis, One of the worst was the Black Death, also known as the plague, and it killed, get this, 75 to 200 million people in the 14th century. Crazy. Other notable pandemics are the 1918 influenza pandemic, also known as the Spanish flu, somewhat controversially, and the 2009 influenza pandemic, which is this H1N1 that you hear about. So where do we stand today with pandemics? We've actually got uh, an HIV-AIDS pandemic that continues across our globe, although the World Health Organization calls it a global epidemic. Most people refer to it as a pandemic. Probably most of us have heard of it. Many of us remember it. Broke out in 1981 and continues through today. It originated in Africa and spread to the U.S. via Haiti between 1966 and 1972. It has infection rates, get this, as high as 25% in southern and eastern Africa. In 2006, HIV prevalence rate among pregnant women in South Africa was 29%. Just horrible. And half of infants born with HIV die before two years of age if they don't get treated. There were about 770,000 deaths from AIDS in 2008. It's estimated that the global incidence of infection peaked in 1997 at about 3.3 million per year. Effective education, safer sexual practices, more information about bloodborne infection precautions, training has slowed down the infection rate. It has much better, obviously, effective treatments than it had when it first broke out, uh, particularly due to very aggressive R&D that was done 
and people moved very quickly to save lives, but there's no vaccine for it. We also have COVID-19, with which we're very familiar right now. It's a new strain of a coronavirus uh, started in China, as we know, in late uh, December 2019, and has uh, now reached more than 200 countries, and we've had major outbreaks, obviously, here in the United States, China, Western Europe, Iran, all the things that we're seeing on our headlines day after day now. It was described as a pandemic by the World Health Organization in March of 2020. As of today, the day I'm recording this episode, the number of people infected with COVID-19 has reached 2 million worldwide, and the death toll is at 134,000 or so. Uh, Some of the websites that I look at it have it more like 144,000. What are coronaviruses? They are a large family of viruses that actually cause all kinds of illnesses, all the way from the common cold to diseases like MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, and SARS, the Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome that we also have been hearing about. And then this new coronavirus, the COVID-19, is a new strain of the coronavirus from SARS. Okay, I hope you can keep all that straight. So coronaviruses are often transmitted from animals to people. It was found that the SARS, the first one, was actually transmitted from civets, which is a very interesting mammal that you should go look at a picture of. It's really cool a looking kind of cat kind of mammal, uh, nocturnal, very cool. And it looks as though it was actually, those an- mammals are sold for meat in China, and it looks as though they were carrying this, vi- this SARS virus from horseshoe bats to humans. And that uh, initial SARS outbreak killed only about 774 people in 2002 to 2003. It was identified by an Italian physician, Carlo Urbani, in 2003 when he was the first to recognize it as a new and dangerously contagious disease. Sadly, as we've seen play out in other cases, he too became infected and died. Fortunately, there was very rapid action by health authorities to help slow the transmission and eventually break the chain of the transmission, so it was really contained very quickly. It is known, however, that coronaviruses are circulating in animals that have not yet affected humans. So that disease could uh, re-emerge, so to speak, which all calls for a lot more monitoring. But again, only 774 people died from that, so pretty amazing action. Okay, let's go into the way, way back machine. The plague of Athens was an epidemic that devastated Athens in ancient Greece during the second year of the Peloponnesian War, so 430 B.C., And it really had a very big impact on the war because it looked as though the Athenians might win, but instead the plague killed an estimated 75,000 to 100,000 people. But the sheer virulence of this plague prevented its wider spread. So it's really interesting to think about how these viruses uh, try and carry on. And in this case, it was making a mistake because it was so virulent that it was killing its hosts off quicker than they could spread it. So not an effective strategy for the plague. 
it wasn't understood for a long time what had caused that plague, but eventually, in fact, fairly recently, they analyzed some teeth that were recovered from a mass grave, and they said, in fact, the bacteria that they found was from typhoid. Here's another plague for you. Uh, Antonine from 165 to 180 AD, also known as the Plague of Galen. And Galen was an interesting guy, alias Galenus, if I'm not butchering the pronunciation of his name. It's often anglicized as Galen. And he was a physician, surgeon, and philosopher in the Roman Empire, a very interesting early medical researcher, and did a lot with dissection and influenced the development of all kinds of disciplines, including anatomy, physiology, pathology, as well as philosophy and logic, of all things. That plague was brought to the Roman Empire by troops who were returning from the Near East. Gallen's description of that plague that swept through the Roman Empire after it was brought back to Syria and Italy, it raged for 15 years. And his description would lead us to believe that this was actually a smallpox-caused plague. And the total deaths from that thing have been estimated at 5 million It actually broke out again nine years later. It had a different name, the plague of the Cyprian. It's actually not sure whether or not that was smallpox or measles, um, but that thing was incredibly fatal and was killing 2,000 to 5,000 people a day in Rome. Can you imagine that, what that would look like with what we're seeing for death totals today? It killed about a quarter of those who were affected, so it had a mortality rate of about 25%. And it killed as much as a third of the population in some areas and obviously devastated the Roman army. There's a lot of belief that these early epidemics and pandemics were actually smallpox, but it's hard to know uh, without a discovery like we had had um, in in that original plague I talked about. I want to talk here a little bit about smallpox because it is really a remarkable uh, disease to follow. The first credible evidence of it is from some people who uh, died about 3,000 years ago, so prehistory. And smallpox has had a major impact on world history. Often here in the United States, we think about the indigenous populations where the smallpox really killed off huge, huge, terrible numbers of people, but also in Australia where original peoples were decimated and weakened by smallpox during periods of time where new people were coming into the country and infecting them. During the 18th century, when the disease really raged, it killed an estimated 400,000 Europeans each year, including five reigning monarchs, and was responsible for a third of all blindness. Incredible. Between 20 and 60% of those infected and over 80% of infected children died from the smallpox. Even during the 20th century, it's estimated that smallpox was responsible for 300 to 500 million deaths. This is just crazy numbers. In the 1950s, an estimated 50 million cases of smallpox occurred in the world each year. And even as recently as 1967, the World Health Organization estimated that 2 million people had died of the disease that year. We've had an incredibly successful vaccination program during the 19th and 20th centuries, 
And in fact, the disease was declared eradicated in December of 1979. And it's one of only two infectious diseases to have been eradicated. So I wanted to talk about smallpox because of the power of the vaccine. And even a relatively short time, you can see the, the tremendous power and effect of, of vaccines, even within your own lifetime. Just to talk briefly about what smallpox did to Native Americans, they were first struck by it in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1633, and it would just wipe out entire populations of Native Americans, the Mohawks in the Lake Ontario area, the lands of the Iroquois. There was a particularly virulent sequence that took place in Boston, and from 1636 to 1698, Boston endured six separate epidemics. And in 1721, the most severe happened. And then what happens is, of course, people flee the city, right? And then they carry the virus elsewhere. And I want to just quickly address this question that gets raised every once in a while about whether or not people tried to infect Indians with blankets that were infected with smallpox. So uh, here's what Wikipedia has to say about it. It was during the siege of Fort Pitt, and one of the uh, officials recorded this in his journal, and some dignitaries from the Delaware tribe came to meet with Fort Pitt officials and told them that they were going to be attacked and asked them to leave the fort while there was still time. And the commander refused to abandon the fort, uh, but the British gave gifts, two blankets, one silk handkerchief, and one linen from the smallpox hospital to the Indian delegates. There was a small outbreak of smallpox that had begun spreading earlier, and hundreds did die from it among the Native American tribes in Ohio Valley and Great Lakes, uh, during this time period of 1763 and 1764. So it's hard to know, according to Wikipedia, the effectiveness of that biological warfare and whether that method was, in fact, fairly inefficient compared to normal respiratory transmission. So it's difficult to differentiate whether or not that worked. Certainly was a very evil thing to do. To go back to this issue of the vaccines, kind of an interesting story. In 1799, there was a physician named Valentin Seaman, and he administered the first smallpox vaccine in the United States. He used some serum that he'd gotten from Edward Jenner, the British physician who invented the vaccine from fluid taken from the cowpox lesions. And of course, he at first the first administration that he did was to his children. At that time, vaccines were pretty misunderstood and mistrusted, but Seaman did advocate for their use, and he began coordinating a free vaccination program for the poor in New York City. And that was followed in 1832. The federal government then established a smallpox vaccination program for Native Americans. And in the early 1900s, smallpox was still moving around, particularly amongst the poor and migrant workers. And it generated this idea that smallpox was a poor person's disease, a filth disease, and would only affect the lower classes. And there was another epidemic back in Boston again between 1901 and 1903. And during that period, almost 300 people died. Overall, it says the epidemic had a 17% fatality rate. 
So they attempted to quarantine people and uh, move them to various facilities. You know, they were trying to keep the sickness from spreading. And so they were starting to uh, encourage everyone to get vaccinated who was living in inexpensive housing. And in order to control the outbreak, the Boston Board of Health began vaccinating people, and people could get free vaccines at their workplace or different stations around the city. And by the end of 1901, about 40,000 people had received the smallpox vaccine, but the epidemic continued to grow. So then they started doing a door-to-door initiation. It's very interesting to think about this and how this would work in modern days. And health officials were instructed to compel individuals to receive the vaccine or pay a fine or spend 15 days in jail. And some people resisted this, surprise, surprise. Uh, You know, they felt as though compulsory vaccination violated an individual's civil rights. Uh, So this eventually led to a court case, this being America, uh, Jacobson versus Massachusetts, and it involved a Cambridge resident's refusal to be vaccinated. His name was Henning uh, Jacobson, and he was a Swedish immigrant, and he refused the vaccination because he was under the impression that he had had it as a child and it had made him sick. So he challenged the state's authority to force people to receive the vaccine. And his case was lost at the state level, but then it was taken up by the Supreme Court. And in 1905, they upheld the Massachusetts law, and it was ruled that Jacobson couldn't refuse the mandatory vaccination. Very interesting to think about that in the modern era. Particularly, it just leaps to mind for me if people were to uh, refuse to take the vaccination out of uh, religious beliefs. So interesting uh, issues, surely, in our future. Okay, let's go back to plagues because they're so much fun. So plague of Justinian was the first outbreak of the bubonic plague, and we're going to hear a lot more about that. That was uh, at 541 to 750 AD, and it started in Egypt and was killing 10,000 people a day, and maybe uh, after it reached Constantinople and about 40,000 of the city's inhabitants. It was believed to be carried by rats on merchant ships because they carried fleas that were inflected with the plague. And some people believe that that Justinian plague was one of the deadliest pandemics in history, killed about 25 to 100 million people during two centuries of recurrence, a death toll that was equivalent to as much as half of Europe's population at the time, went on to eliminate a quarter to a half of all human population of the known world. It killed off half of Europe's population between 5050 AD and 700 AD. Wow. And then uh, Black Death came. Those number of deaths are estimated to be 75 to 200 million people. 800 years after the last outbreak, the plague returned to Europe. It killed an estimated 20 to 30 million Europeans in six years, which is a third of the total population. It was the first of a cycle of European plague epidemics that continued until the 18th century, and there have been more than 100 of those uh, during that period. It uh, moved on to England every, every two to five years and also reduced England's population by about 50%. The Great Plague of London of 1665 was the last major outbreak of the plague in England, and the disease killed approximately 100,000 people 
uh, in those two years. There was a third plague epidemic that started in China and spread into India in 1855, and 10 million people were killed in that. And the San Francisco plague of 1900 to 1904 was part of that pandemic. And you know, there's still cases of plague uh, today in Western United States. Okay, we're going to leap ahead here across a whole bunch of cholera pandemics. Since it became widespread in the 19th century, it has killed also tens of millions of people. Typhus, also known as camp fever or jail fever or ship fever, has a tendency to spread in cramped quarters and has killed off 8 million Germans during the Thirty Years' War and killed off millions of Russians from 1918 to 1922. Uh, Just devastated some of the Soviet POWs who were in Nazi custody. Measles, also a very, very dangerous disease that continues to rage. And although there's a vaccine now in the United States, before there was such a thing, there were three to four million cases in the U.S. each year. And it's killed around 200 million people over the last 150 years. Even in 2000, year 2000, it killed 777,000 worldwide. It's crazy how these diseases just rage. And tuberculosis also kills a lot of people around the world. Eight million people become ill with it, and two million die each year worldwide. In the 19th century, tuberculosis killed an estimated one quarter of the adult population. It's still one of the most important health problems in the developing world. In countries that have a lot of cases of TB, there's a vaccine that's given to infants. We don't have that uh, anymore in the United States because we have so few cases of TB. This tuberculosis vaccine, uh, which is called the BCG, is actually coming into the news again as potentially helping people to fight off COVID-19 and that it might have broad power to boost the immune system. There's very little evidence for it, and the World Health Organization published just recently a scientific brief saying there's no evidence that it protects against the new coronavirus and it doesn't recommend using it. But there's a uh, researcher at Mass General, Denise Faustman, and she's been studying BCG for years as a therapy for type 1 diabetes, so she had some of the vaccine. And so she's looking uh, for permission to quickly mount a trial at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital. Leprosy has been around also for a really long time. Malaria, also very dangerous. And then finally, yellow fever. I don't want to depress you too much with all these uh, terrible diseases. Also has been the source of several devastating epidemics. And that brings us to flu, influenza. It was uh, first described by Hippocrates, the father of medicine, and the first pandemic for flu was recorded in 1580. And then they come back every 10 to 30 years, we have a new pandemic. So there was one 1889 to 1890, which was known as the Russian flu or Asiatic flu. It's like, okay, now, now I'm understanding where these all are. And then there was the Spanish flu that was first identified in 1918 in U.S. troops here in Kansas. And by October, it had spread to become a worldwide pandemic on all continents and eventually infected about a third of the world's population. It was unusually deadly and virulent. It 
ended almost as quickly as it began, vanishing completely within 18 months. And within six months, some 50 million people were dead. Some put the estimates for fatalities at over twice that number. Most influenza outbreaks uh, kill the very young and the very old, with the people in the middle uh, surviving better. But the Spanish flu was, was very weird. It had this high mortality rate for young adults. There's some speculation that it was actually using a healthy immune system uh, to turn against the host and killed them off more quickly. It killed more people than World War I did, and it killed more people in 25 weeks than AIDS did in its first 25 years. And World War I really exasperated its spread with the movement of soldiers and their close quarters and also malnourishment and, and so forth. So it made it much easier for the disease to spread now, the Asian flu was in 1957 to 1958. It was an H2N2, uh, first identified by China, and it caused about 2 million deaths globally. And then we had the Hong Kong flu, which was 1968 to 1969. This was an H3N2 virus in Hong Kong, uh, spread across the world until about 1972, and it killed about a million people worldwide. And then finally, lastly, we get to the swine flu uh, from 2009 to 2010, and it was an H1N1 virus first detected in Mexico, and it's estimated that the mortality for that pandemic was about 150 to 500,000 people. I want to close here by saying I wanted to look at this not to gross everybody out and, and uh, have us have all these dark thoughts about all these millions of people, but to think about the creativity and effort and initiative and drive and motivation that allows humans to overcome disease like this and how with our resources today and how many dozens of companies and laboratories have jumped forward to find a vaccine against the coronavirus, the COVID-19. And I feel very sure that they will be successful. There seems to be indications that the structure of this virus is such that it can be fairly easily attacked and designed against. And so I want us to recognize and put in perspective where we are today compared with some of the pandemics and epidemics that have raged in the past and how we have survived those and emerged stronger and more resourceful than ever. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. 
We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you.